Hi, this is Sarah McCaslin with the Forgotten Sheep Podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to continue talking about German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, when we stopped off last time, we talked about Dietrich's involvement in the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church was the part of the German church that openly resisted uh, Nazism, openly resisted Nazism's attempt to take control of the church. And uh, we also talked about how Bonhoeffer was not perfect, how he had in the past um, behaved in an anti-Semitic manner, and uh, how the Lord had dealt with him about that. We also talked about how a preacher, how a pastor and a theologian, how someone goes from being a pastor and a theologian to being involved in a plot to kill Hitler. Well, moving on with the story of Bonhoeffer, uh, for a time, he served as a pastor for some Germanic congregations that were located in London. And during that time, he was able to make some very key contacts that would prove vital for the confessing church and the German resistance in later years. However, Dietrich felt very strongly that his place was in Germany and not there in London. Then the uh, Union Theological Seminary invited him back to the U.S. And as much as Dietrich wanted to go, again, he felt that his responsibility was to be in Germany. He felt that he should be with his people. And he also pointed out, and I like the hope that this expresses, he said that he didn't have a right to help in the rebuilding of Germany if he didn't stay through the times of trouble that Germany faced. And that tells us that he did believe that Nazism would eventually fall. And he did believe that Germany would be rebuilt. So Bonhoeffer returns to Germany with hope and a belief that there is a future for Germany after Nazism is through. Now, he and the other ministers like himself that refused to conform to the Nazi demands on the organized church in Germany were forced out of the organized church in Germany for the most part. And they were forced to take uh, many of their, their services underground. And underground is kind of a confusing word. I remember when I was a little kid, I thought that meant literally underground. You know, that they had to hold their services in basements and cellars and things like that. Well, a better word for it nowadays might be under the radar, out of the notice of people. Okay, so, if you're looking forward to Germany having a future... And you realize that there are German young people wanting to enter the ministry that don't want to be a part of what is going on with Nazism in Germany. Then naturally the need arises for a seminary. So, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich started an underground seminary, an under-the-radar seminary for these young people that felt a call to ministry but did not want to pollute themselves with the uh, false teachings that were now taking hold in the German church. So Bonhoeffer started this underground seminary in a remote part of Germany, and it was one of five seminaries of the confessing church. 
And he worked very hard, very hard to train young ministers according to the Bible. Not even according to church doctrine, but they focused on the Bible. They followed a strict regimen, not just of teaching, but also personal habits to help them build up discipline in their personal lives. And, you know, you hear that and you think, oh my, that sounds very strict. That doesn't, and very legalistic. That doesn't sound fun at all. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer might come across as strict and legalistic, but if you start looking at pictures of him online that have, uh, were taken through the years, you will realize he was anything but an extremely austere man. Uh, they actually held quite a few of their seminary classes outdoors. Okay, so um, it was not all seriousness. There was some fun. There was some uh, humor. There was life and joy in it. Now, eventually, the Gestapo uh, found out about uh, Bonhoeffer's underground seminary. And by the way, it was uh, called Finkenwald. Now, if you're of Germanic origin, or if you know German, you probably know I'm pronouncing that wrong, and I apologize. But the best I can figure this out, it's Finkenwald. Now, it was shut down by the Gestapo in 1937, just two years after it started. So then, because it was shut down, Bonhoeffer began to travel from place to place in Germany. So it became a traveling seminary where it never stayed in one place so long as to be uh, found out by the Gestapo. So this went on for two years as he traveled all over Germany to keep training these young people that were hungry for God and determined to obey God and not man. Now, um, he was finally banned from public speaking in 1940, and he was also banned from the city of Berlin in 1940, and 24 of his students were arrested. And many of those students were in charge of, quote, unquote, illegal parishes, where they were uh, holding to the teachings of the confessing church. So these were some of the underground churches, uh, the under-the-radar churches. So, um... That was one of the interesting things going on. Something else, uh, well, before I go on, I want to talk a little bit more about Finkenwald before I move on to my next topic. So I said that the main focus of this uh, under-the-radar seminary was the Bible. They studied the Bible. They learned Greek and Hebrew. And I love this part. Remember, we talked about during his time in America... Dietrich Bonhoeffer went from studying the scriptures intellectually to adding to that, looking at these scriptures and figuring out how to apply them to life. And so that's one of the key things that he expected of his seminary students. They were assigned scriptures to meditate on and then apply to their own lives. How many times do we read the Bible and we think, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's a nice scripture. But have we ever really taken the time and looked at one scripture and said, how can I apply this to my life? How can I apply this to my life today? 
I wonder what a dramatic change it might bring about in our relationship with the Lord in in our churches if we begin to adapt that attitude, adopt that attitude of looking at the scriptures and not being satisfied until the Lord has showed us how to apply it to our lives. Another aspect of the underground seminary Fingenwald was the focus on confession, not confession of sin, but confession of beliefs. Um, Dietrich encouraged his students to wrestle with doctrine and teachings that were difficult to understand. He didn't mind them asking questions. He didn't mind them asking whys and wherefores. He didn't mind them arguing. Now, I wouldn't say so much arguing doctrine, but debating doctrine, trying to discover its true meaning. There's a difference between debating to discover the true meaning of something or to discover the truth about something and debating to see who can win. If you go into an argument, you go into a debate, and your only thought is, I'm going to prove them wrong, you're going to gain nothing from that. But if you go into a debate genuinely seeking truth, genuinely seeking to learn something, even though it might, you might not have your mind changed, but if you are open to learning something, if you are a sincere seeker of the truth, you will find it. The Bible says, Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Ask, and ye shall receive. And sometimes, if we go in with an attitude that I already know it all, we will never learn anything. And a sure sign that we know little is when we're convinced that we know so much. Well, another reason for uh, Dietrich's emphasis on confession in the confessing church was that he felt like his students should be able to explain why they believe that they do not just because this is what the uh, church teaches but can they explain from scripture can they support their belief system are they convinced of it now Dietrich also focused greatly on the subject and practice of prayer uh, some said he was downright, downright legalistic about his emphasis on prayer. I have a hard time picturing someone being legalistic about prayer, but hey, I don't know everything. But they told him, one religious reader, leader told Dietrich that the times were too urgent for prayer. Now, the way I was raised by my mother, prayer is one of the, the most important things that we can do. And the thought of times being too urgent for prayer shocks me to my core that a religious leader would say that there are is never anything too urgent for prayer. If anything, the more urgent the situation, the more critical prayer is. Martin Luther talked about how he would uh, the importance of prayer in his own life. And about how he would pray before he would even write out his to-do list for the day. That he felt like prayer was more important than anything else he could do. Now this is not prayer as an excuse for laziness. But this is prayer as an integrated part of your life. Of our life. I know one of the lessons that uh, the Lord has been teaching me. Is that when trouble comes. 
Do I turn to the Lord first in prayer or do, or do I turn to somebody? And as I myself had loved ones taken out of my life that I had depended on for years to pray for me, when they were taken out of my life by death, then guess what? I started turning to the Lord uh, as soon as something happened. And I learned, and I'm not going to say I've completely learned this lesson yet, but I have learned that when something bad happens, when something upsets us, if we turn to the Lord first, that is the most important thing that we can do. Then reach out to others, but always turn to the Lord first. He has so much power to help us. And yet we so many times make prayer as a last resort. And I want to comment on one other thing. Uh, in the aftermath of so many shootings at our schools in the United States, there were certain politicians that would say, well, they're sending their thoughts and prayers. And people began to mock that statement. And I understand the people mocking that statement if you don't back up the thoughts and prayers with anything else. But we as Christians, while recognizing how other people view that statement, we know that prayer does make a difference. And we should be praying. Praying is important. Praying is vital. And so while many people would mock that uh, uh, statement of praying, yeah, we make a mockery of it if we go around telling people, oh, I'm praying for you, and we never give them a second thought. Or something horrible, like a school shooting happens, and we publicly say that we're praying about it, and we don't really pray. Yes, that's making a mockery. But, oh, if people truly would if the Christians in the United States truly would send their prayers. The Bible tells us the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I have to question, with these school shootings taking place, Christians, are we truly praying about it? We love to say, well, it's because they took Bible out of the classroom. They took prayer out. They can't take Jesus out of those classrooms. And we need to be praying. I can't help but wonder if we prayed, as the Bible said, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, if we truly bound together and prayed, what an impact it would have on our nation. It's not an arguing politics on the Internet. It's not an arguing gun control as a, a solution to, to the problem. It's in praying about it. And praying for the Lord to give our leaders wisdom. And praying for the Lord to protect the kids in these classrooms across America. And I, I don't mean to get off topic on that, but I feel that very strongly. Prayer is important. Prayer is vital. And I'll tell you what. I had heard my mother pray many times. My mother heard her mother pray many times. And I'll tell you what, I don't pray like her. And I don't know of many people that do. And perhaps if we prayed like our forefathers did, we would see the blessings of God on our nation again. If we prayed like our forefathers did, maybe we could get enough of fire of God on this nation again that sin would begin to diminish. The public celebration of sin and wickedness would begin to diminish we love to blame it on the sinner, but then again, the Bible tells us that the Christians are to be the salt of the earth. 
But it also says if the salt has lost its savor, it is then good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Have we, has this generation of Christians in America, have we lost our savor? Well, that was something Bonhoeffer was determined would not be true of his seminary students. He was determined to teach them to pray, to teach them to discipline themselves to pray. When someone said to him that the situation was too urgent to pray, Bonhoeffer said this either shows a total lack of understanding of young theologians today or a blasphemous ignorance of how preaching and teaching come about. And another thought for us, perhaps if we serve the Lord like our forefathers did, perhaps if we prayed and took on the mantle of intercession like our forefathers do, perhaps if we did that, people wouldn't be mocking prayer because they would have seen the impact of it in their lives and the lives of those around them. Well, another interesting twist in the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer ties in with his issues in avoiding the draft in Germany. Obviously, the last place that Bonhoeffer wanted to find himself was fighting on the Nazi side. And he was also a strong pacifist. He did not believe in taking up arms against his fellow man. And there are many Christians today that also feel that way. It's a uh, conviction that they have. And so he managed to avoid the draft into the Nazi military by serving in a branch of military intelligence. And you have to see the hand of the Lord here, <laughs> that of all places, Bonhoeffer ended up in military intelligence. Now, here's the interesting thing. What to the Nazis seemed to be an office of military intelligence was actually a counterintelligence group that was bent on bringing an end to the Nazi regime in Germany. And there, Bonhoeffer was tasked with going to different religious gatherings across Europe uh, to report back to the Nazis on what uh, was going on at these religious gatherings. So, Bonhoeffer did that, but what he was really doing was using those opportunities to establish contacts for the German resistance so that they could get help they needed, so that they could get people out of the country, so they could get what, uh, what they needed to successfully resist the uh, Nazis. One of the key things uh, as far as the resistance and the confessing church was that they wanted the European nations to know there was an active resistance, that not all Germans had fallen under the spell of Nazism, that not all Germans believed it was the right way to go. And they wanted reassurance that if they brought down the Nazi regime from inside Germany, that they would not be treated as they were in World War One, Those assurances were never given. Now, um, the officer in charge of this counterintelligence office gathered information about the atrocities that were being committed by the Nazis. Um, his brother-in-law had gotten him that position, 
and Bonhoeffer tried to get the Nazis to see that their religious control was making Germany look bad to the outside world in an attempt to get them to loosen some of that control they had on the churches. But nobody paid any attention to his warnings. Now, I want you to notice something here. There were atrocities being committed by the Nazis that the average German didn't know about right away. Now, over time, those atrocities became revealed while the Nazis were still in power. But uh, that's why it's important not to overlook any form of injustice. Because what we find out may just be scratching the surface. It may be the tip of a mammoth iceberg with so much going on behind the scenes that we have no idea about. So, the Nazis didn't care what the world religions thought about them because their goal was actually world domination. They weren't worrying about getting along with the other nations. They wanted to control the other nations. Now, once Bonhoeffer was made aware of the mass murders and atrocities and torture, something clicked inside of him. And he felt the only way to stop the Nazis was through assassinating Hitler. Right or wrong, that is the conclusion that Bonhoeffer came to when he came face to face with the evil the outright primal evil that was going on in Germany, in the country that he loved, in the country that he prayed for, to find out that people were being slaughtered and murdered and tortured. Now, he was not directly involved in the three attempts that were made on Hitler's life, but he was a party to them. Now, coincidentally, the Nazis only knew about one attempt on Hitler. There were actually uh, three attempts. Now, let's talk about Bonhoeffer's role in these attempts. Dietrich, uh, besides informing people outside of Germany about the resistance and its plans, focused heavily on helping the Jews. And he helped to draft a memo whose intent was to inform the outside world of the mass deportation that was taking place um, of how they were gathering the Jews up and separating them from the rest of the nation Bonhoeffer and the other counterintelligence officials felt strongly that the rest of the world needed to know about this now later Bonhoeffer became involved in helping Jews escape Germany in one instance, they were giving Jews papers representing them as German foreign agents working for the counterintelligence office that Bonhoeffer worked for. And when the Gestapo found out, things progressed uh, very quickly. Now, as I said, Bonhoeffer was not directly involved in the assassination attempts, but was aware of them and fully approved of them. Uh, in one instance, there were two bottles of wine containing a detonator that would go off when Hitler's plane was in the air. They never went off, and Hitler didn't discover the detonators until much later. And uh, another attempt, a man was going to act as a suicide bomber, but he could not get close enough to Hitler to do so. Now, the man in charge of counterintelligence 
was Admiral Canaris. He utterly despised what Hitler was doing and used his military position in history to work hard at undermining Hitler in every way that he could. And he was the one who spearheaded the assassination attempts and kept track of Nazi atrocities in a file known as the Zossen Documents. These documents were later destroyed by the Nazis because of the war crime implications of them. Now, during this same time, uh, Bonhoeffer, just a few months before he was arrested, got engaged. He asked young Maria von Weidenmeyer to marry him. She was a relative of one of the women who had strongly supported his Bible school, his seminary. Now, he would be arrested just three months after she accepted his proposal. And they had never, before and after the engagements, they never even had a chance to uh, be alone for something as simple as going for a walk. And when he was later arrested, she didn't turn her back on him, but she uh, visited him often and brought him clothing, food, and books. So let's talk for a minute about Bonhoeffer's arrest. The Nazis eventually figured out that military intelligence office was a cover for the resistance. And Bonhoeffer was arrested in 1943. And the arrest occurred shortly after his father's 75th birthday, upon which his father was awarded a medal for his work in science. And the medal was awarded by Hitler. Hitler knew who... Uh, Dr. Bonhoeffer's son was. Now, Bonhoeffer was horrified at the conditions in prison, but it wasn't that he was horrified for himself so much as he was horrified for others. And he then he noticed a sudden change in treatment. He began to receive more food, which he refused, and was put in a cell which was clean for him every day. And this happened because one of his uncles was a respected officer. And he described the crying and weeping that he would hear hour after hour coming from the other prisoners and the filthy verbal abuse that the guards hurled at them and the cruelty that he saw on every hand. Now, we already mentioned that he refused the extra food that was offered him because he knew that it was coming from the plates of other prisoners and he wasn't going to be a part of that. Here's some other things about him which I think are very special. He paid for the legal defense of some of his fellow prisoners. He was allowed to hold short church services, which he did. He was given an opportunity to escape, but Bonhoeffer refused it because it could put his family at risk. And he did this. He refused that offer to escape knowing that he was going to most likely be executed. So this truly was a man that was doing everything he could to follow Jesus' commandments. He was concerned for others. He was putting others first, and he was praying for his enemies. Now, the initial charges involved, number one, conspiring to rescue Jews. Number two, using his foreign travels for non-intelligence matters. Number three, helping the confessing church pastors evade military service using his intelligence connections. 
Now, after a failed coup attempt, his connections to other resistance leaders were discovered. And this was very bad for Bonhoeffer. It turned out he was guilty of even more than the Nazis realized. And Hitler was determined that the entire group would be exterminated. On the morning of his execution, April 9, 1945, knowing that he was about to die, Bonhoeffer led a church service for the prisoners. What kind of peace and confidence in God one must have to lead a church service on the day of one's execution? When they took him from his cell, he was praying, which should come as no surprise to us, and no doubt explains the peace and calmness with which he faced his imminent death. He was hung along with fellow resistance members. And it took eight, uh, I'm sorry, it took six hours for those Nazi officers to execute eight men. Um, Torture is suspected. It is suspected that they were not only hung, but they were also tortured. The only living witness was a concentration camp doctor who said that as he watched, Bonhoeffer offered no resistance and seemed very calm. In the aftermath, his family, including his fiancée, did not know of his death until quite a while after the war was over. He was executed just weeks before that same concentration camp fell to the Allies. And his family found out about his death because of a memorial service held for him in London that was played on the radio. Can you imagine turning on your radio to listen to a church service and hearing your child's funeral. His friends outside of Germany knew of his death before his family in Germany did. Now, Dietrich was not the only family member to die at the hands of the Nazis. His brother Klaus and two brother-in-laws were also executed. Eight other resistance members were executed that same day, including Admiral Canaris. And a memorial has been placed at that concentration camp in their memory. Now, before I wrap this up, I want to, again, revisit one of the topics that Bonhoeffer is best known for. His books are still on the market, still being sold. And that's Cheap Grace versus Costly Grace. In Germany, it was if... The enemy was preparing the churches to fall for the Nazi influences, to fall for the deception uh, of Hitler. By having preached, having, by influencing ministers that were not fully committed to God like they should be, to preach a watered-down version of the gospel. And this is uh, Bonhoeffer's summary of what was being preached in Germany. And it is disturbingly familiar. And I know I dealt with this in the last podcast, but I feel this is so important. It needs to be addressed again. And I quote, Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury. 
from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. And if we, if we would defend our hearts, our minds, our souls, our spirits, this is my talk, me talking now, finish quoting Bonhoeffer. If we would defend ourselves from falling for deception in the last days, then we have to make sure that the grace we are claiming for ourselves is the costly grace, the true grace, the gospel grace, the grace bestowed by Jesus Christ, and not the cheap grace that is being taught in so many pulpits, in so many books, in so many sermons across the United States. Well, I hope, I hope this podcast has made you think. That's my goal with this, is to make you think. As I studied Bonhoeffer's life, it made me think. And we should never close our minds. I don't know how to say this the way I really want to. Don't stop thinking. Being a Christian doesn't mean you stop thinking. Being a Christian means that you think with the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. And so I hope this makes you think. I hope it makes you turn to the Lord like myself and seek more discipline in prayer and seek to not be deceived in what may well be the last days of the world that we are in. So this is Sarah from Forgotten Sheep Podcast.